I'm reviewing here! Ooh, baby, what is up, everybody? <laughs> Sorry. You know, I have an Oprah impression, but I don't know if I should do it, but it's kind of that. It's it's usually like, ooh, you know, like, you get a car. I'm in the woods right now. It's it's like that, you know, it's like a lot of like cheering, but I can't really do a good. I, I'm not very good at it. Anyway, hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I'm Reviewing Here, a podcast where I, Matthew Bussey, watches and reviews the Sight and Sound's top greatest movies of all time. It's fun. And it is not tiresome at all. No, I really mean that. It's not tiresome at all. But look, before we get into today's episode, a quick word from my first sponsor. Are you ready? Here we go. Tampons. They're expensive, am I right? Well, go to IKEA and get them for 90% off. Just go to IKEA.com slash I'm reviewing here for 90% off, you can get a bundle of 12 of them for just 99 cents. No, I'm just kidding. That was a lie. I'm a liar. I don't have any sponsors. I don't even know how to begin doing that. There is a, there's an option in, uh, RSS, which is, you know, what podcasters use, uh, like like for their feed, you know. Um, but I, I don't have the time to do that right now. It would be cool though. I wonder what I would sponsor. McDonald's. No. Hell no. Hip City Veg. Yes. Oh, I would totally do that. Hip City Veg. Oh my god. Well, this is all about sight and sound. So of course, um, if they, you know, acquiesce and accept me, then yeah, I would totally promote sight and sound and the British Film Institute. Uh, and I can use my British accent too. You're going to probably hear it because today's movie is a British movie. But um, yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, Satan Sound slash BFI, if you're listening to this, you got a fan. Oh, this is weird. You know, I'm sitting in a different spot today for today's episode. I'm sitting on my couch because that stupid swivel rotating chair keeps making fart noises every time I'm, I'm, I do an episode. I listened to the last episode of A Clockwork Orange and it's legit like, hi, yeah, Clockwork Orange is really good. You like hear that in the background. Oh, so annoying. I'm moving into a new place because I'm currently living in a shoebox. Like, it's literally the size of a shoe. But um, but was that sponsor, um, you know, fake commercial at the beginning? Was that good? Was that good? Leave your comments. Please do. Um, because I am curious. You know, a funny thing about Tampax, tampons, whatever. This is a true story. For the longest time, I thought that the phrase to be plug-in I thought that was an actual phrase that girls used with one another when they were on their period. I kid you not. Like, I thought to be plug-in meant to be on your period. So, like, let's, like, give ourselves a scenario here. Okay, there are two best friends, uh, Sarah and Peggy Sue. Okay, here's the scenario. They're meeting up for lunch. Peggy Sue. Hi, Sarah. Sarah. Hey, Peggy Sue. How was your weekend? Peggy Sue. Not good. I'm plugging. Sarah. Oh, I'm so sorry. How long have you been plugging? Peggy Sue. Uh, just a few days now. What about you, Sarah? Nah, I plugged next last month. I got to wait till this month now. You know, like that's what I thought that people, women used that phrase for. I thought that's what it all meant, but... I was dead wrong, guys. Uh, that's not real. I I brought that up to a, a um one of my friend's girlfriends a while back, and she was like, "We don't say that." And I was like, "Really?" She was like, 
yeah, like you, like you've spoken to girls, right? I'm like, yeah, I have, but I don't speak to girls when they're having private talk like that, like about, you know, periods. And, so, and she was like, yeah, I, okay. Yeah, I get that. But we don't, we never say that. And I was, I was, um, I felt really embarrassed. I wonder what girls think guys talk about when they talk about, you know, their manhoods. Like what phrases do they think that we use that's, to that are totally wrong. Well, I use everything that's totally wrong because I'm a weirdo, but, um, okay. I guess we should probably change the subject. God, everything in this podcast always, I always get off topic, but it's fun. And this is good. Look, I'm not even five minutes in yet and I haven't spoken about the movie yet, which is good. I want to get into today's movie because it's, it's a shocking one. No, the movie's not shocking. My reaction to it is shocking. Today, my friends, we are going to talk about A Canterbury Tale. The real voice you heard, you're not dreaming. Oh, no. Just now, I... I heard... sounds. What sounds did you hear? Horses' hooves. Voices. And a lute. Or an instrument like a lute. Did you hear anything? Those sounds come from inside, not outside. They don't do when you're concentrating, when you believe strongly in something. Just now, I was concentrating on who was coming up the hill to disturb me. Disturb you at what? Breathing the air, smelling the earth, watching the clouds. Why don't you sit down? You know, I was very mistaken about you. I'm sorry. I was mistaken about you, too. I was mistaken by thinking I would enjoy this movie. Guys, I have an announcement to make. We're what, like, this is like the ninth or eighth episode. This is the first time I did not enjoy a movie on the sight and sound list. A Canterbury Tale, no, no, I didn't like it. It did not stick with me. Uh, I got very bored with it. It's not a bad movie. It's it's not. Um, I have nothing hateful to say about it. It's nothing like that. Um, Maybe I wasn't in the mood for it. I don't know. Maybe it would have been different if I, if like the circumstances were, were a little bit different. Um, I wanted to like it so badly because uh, here's the, here's the thing. Um, A Canterbury Tale was directed by two of the most famous directors in British cinema, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. They were a duo. They did a whole lot of movies together. Their production company, I love this, their production company was called The Archers. And the the image was, well, uh, art, uh, you know, what is it? What does Katniss do in The Hunger Games? Arrows going through, a, a you know, the, the, the circles and the other circle and the other circle and the other circle. Yeah, you know, it was that. So, um, very famous guys. Uh, yeah, Powell and Pressburger. I'll just refer to them as that. Uh, I think that they were just like buddies. This was, you know, I had never seen a movie of theirs until now. I don't think that they really had a, a like a style, you know, they didn't really have like like a a genre that they stuck with, you know, like nowadays there are a lot of directors, duo directors that direct horror movies only, you know, but they always do that. Like the directors who did Ready or Not, you know, they also did Scream 5 and Scream 6. And I think they did, uh, you know, some other horror movies, but these directors though, they, they're most famous for two films from the forties. Also, you know, their movies, they're, they're from the forties and fifties, but, um, 
that's really it. They didn't really uh, do a lot after that. Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes are very probably two of their most famous movies. I have not seen them. I believe that they're on this list, and I can't. Well, what am I doing? And I cannot wait to watch them. I think The Red Shoes is definitely on the list. The Red Shoes is kind of semi-inspirational for Black Swan, which is one of the greatest movies of all time. So I cannot wait to get to that. But okay, A Canterbury Tale. Oy you know, this is a very pleasant movie. It's pleasant. It's pleasant. It, it, it's like G-rated, you know? It's not really a kid's movie, but it's a very pleasant, nice movie. Um, the title itself, you know, if, if you're familiar with The Canterbury Tales, The Canterbury Tales uh, is a v- very popular collection of short stories by uh, this man named Geoffrey Ch- Chaucer. Chaucer, I forget how you say his last name. He was British. He He's... he's vi- the Canterbury, the Canterbury Tales are like one of the most famous. It's one of like the most famous texts of all time, and Chaucer is is uh, uh you know some people call him like the father of English literature. I learned about the Canterbury Tales in high school, senior year. I took one of my favorite classes ever, uh, where we learned all about English. It wasn't even like a literature class, but we learned all about architecture and famous architecture and famous art and it was like it was like a mix of art history and English history and everything we learned about the Canterbury Tales and I remember a lot of high school I remember everything I remember everything in college too I even wrote a book about my college experience but it's not for sale because my friends and everyone I went to college with who knows me would probably sue me because I did not change any of the names and I really only wrote the book for myself because I just needed to get it out because it was very therapeutic. <laughs> okay. Um I remember uh learning about the Canterbury Tales and what I vaguely remember is that the tales were very absurd. Absurd like too exponentially absurd. I remember my friend and I uh one of our projects was like we had to like do a little presentation where we like reenacted one of the, <laughs> one of the tales in the Canterbury Tales, and it was it was crazy. I really want to go back and read these stories because I just remember there being a lot of fart jokes. I remember there being a really racy humor in it. Uh, it was ahead of its time. Also, guys, the Canterbury Tales. The this came out in the 14th century. Yes, I believe that's right. Literature people, if you're listening to this and I'm wrong, I do apologize. But yeah, 13th century England, reading stories like that, I mean, whoo! That must have been a lot. It must have been a little bit shocking. I mean, it's harmless. It's all just humor, but still, I mean, but absurd. You know, absurd is the main word to describe them. And the Canterbury Tale, it's not... It's not about one of the tales from a Canterbury Tales, but you know what Powell and Pressburger did is they they just they took that title and they kind of played with it a little bit because the story and the movie A Canterbury Tale is also very absurd, and I didn't really like it. I, I I couldn't get with it. I didn't find the movie to be very funny. I didn't find the movie to be enjoyably absurd. But I'm gonna get to it. Um, I'm gonna get to also why it is a good movie overall. Um, but I'm surprised though that, you know, this movie made the list. I need to read more reviews of why nowadays people love the movie so much. I'm surprised, for example, that, you know, it's ahead of like 
Earth or A Clockwork Orange or, or uh, you know, My Darling Clementine, which I personally thought were much better made than, than this one. But, you know, my opinion, my opinion, no one else's, just mine. So A Canterbury Tale, this movie came out in 1944. It's a British movie too. This was not like made for Hollywood or anything. Like I said, Palin Pressburger, two of the most, if not the most famous British directors of all time. So the movie takes place, it opens up in a very clever way. So it opens up uh, in like a 14th century setting and you see, you know, people in that, in, you know, the clothing from that era and they're riding on... um, uh, sorry, I have a niche in my arm. They're riding on, you know, carriages and everything like that. And you're thinking, oh, Canterbury Tales, it's going to be like set in that time. You know, there's a cool shot where somebody releases like a bird or I think it's like a dove into the sky. And then the dove, uh, the, the shot basically crossfades into like a war, like a World War II plane. And the whole setting changes and it goes back to the the shot on the ground and there's like a tank like going through, you know, this countryside. And you're like, huh, so this isn't set in the 14th century. This is set during World War II. And it's true. This movie is set during 19, 1943 and the movie came out in 1944. Think about that for a sec. This was a movie made during World War II. And there were a lot of movies that were made during World War II that either poked fun at World War II or, you know, were uh, very, you know, propagandistic or trying to make a statement. But th- that's, you know, a big deal in this movie. I think maybe that's why critics like it so much. Uh, it's clever. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, but here's what happens. Okay. The, the movie basically... It's almost like a detective story. It really is. Um, but the case that they're solving is just so uh, ridiculous. Uh, so, you know, we find out that, okay, the movie's set in England during uh, uh, 1943. It's set in a fictitious town in Kent in the United Kingdom called Chillingbourne. Uh, that that's a made up town though. The movie was actually filmed in other uh, towns in the area, like. Fordwich, Wickhambrough, and Chilham? Chilham? I've been to England many times when I was a baby. I went to like the countryside of England and I may have been here, but I was such a brat when I was a kid. I remember vaguely, I must have been like six, like us going to like the countryside. Like we went to Stonehenge and like we went, we stayed at this bed and breakfast and I was so mad because I just wanted to like watch TV and like the Disney channel wasn't available there. So I was like, no. And I think I was also mad because I just wanted us to go and buy more beanie babies. That's back when like beanie babies were like the real thing. You know, like if you got a beanie baby, you could like sit at the cool table. So, um, we had brought a few beanie babies, but not enough. And I just wanted more and I threw a fit and, uh, I have not been back to the countryside yet, but I would love to go back. The one thing I did love about, uh, a Canterbury tale. Okay. And I know I always do this in this podcast. I always skip around and skip ahead. Uh, but you know, the locations in this movie, the cinematography, the photography, whatever you want to call it, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. The shots of the countryside in England and and all of that is gorgeous. And you have to remember, too, uh, people forget about this. You know, a lot of people, they call Citizen Kane 
an American-made movie, uh, the greatest movie of all time. That came out in 1941. Why do people think it's great? Because it was, it's considered to be the first Hollywood movie to really play around with cinematography and what you could do with a movie camera. Think about that for a sec. And a lot of old movies from the 30s and the late 20s and the early 40s too, think about cinematography. Think about the way it's being filmed. A lot of those movies, the cinematography, they're good movies, but the cinematography is not really super impressive. You know, I mentioned like a, a few episodes ago, uh, Mouchette, that was a French movie, but like Mouchette, you know, I talked about how in the opening of that movie, there's a guy who is setting a trap for like a rabbit or whatever, like he's setting an animal trap. But the way it's shot is so unique because, you know, you there's a clo- there's a shot of the trap and then there's a close-up shot of a guy in the woods spying on this guy and it's a close-up and then goes back to the trap and then it's another close-up and it's even closer up in this guy's face and it's like a, an extreme close-up of his eyeballs, you know? Eyeballs? Ooh, I didn't mean to say that. Eyes, you know? And... That's that's a big deal. I think when you see that in old movies, that's why film historians and film professors they they applaud these movies because yeah, that's that's a huge deal, you guys. For back then to in the 40s to play around with the camera like that, it was a big deal. It wasn't just always like, well, we're going to make a movie and that's only going to be about the story. No, no, no. It can be a story and it can be a stylistic movie too. You watch some of the greatest directors alive today. Steven Spielberg, for example. You watch any one of his movies. Oh my God, that man, his vision in every shot, every shot in every one of his movies, he's playing with that camera, you know? whatever, Wherever he's shooting it from, he's playing with it. I have to say that because that is something that I did like about A Canterbury Tale uh, is that, yes, the cinematography, and it was done by a man named Erwin Hillier. Hillier? Hillier? or Hillier, yeah, he was German, so I don't know how you say his last name, but that is very, very good. Okie dokie. Okay, plot. What is this movie about? It basically, yeah, it's like a detective story. It's kind of like a comedy, but not really. Uh, It follows three people, and the movie starts off at a railway station. Now, the three people, they basically end up at this railway station. Their names are, um, there's Sergeant Peter, He's uh, part of the uh, Royal, Air- Royal Air Force. Uh, he's played by an actor named Dennis Price. There's a woman, uh, a sweet woman named Allison Smith, uh, played by Sheila Sim. Now, fun fact, Sheila Sim was married to the one and only Richard Attenborough. Who's Richard Attenborough? Guys, Jurassic Park. Jurassic freaking Park. I'm not even, I, I'm ashamed that you don't know who that man is. Rest in peace. He died in 2014, but Jurassic Park, just Google that and you'll, and his name, Richard Attenborough, and you will know who he is. But yeah, she was married to him. And the third character, he's an American. His name is, uh, he's U.S. Army Sergeant Bob Johnson, and he gets off at the wrong stop. He's heading for uh, Canterbury, Canterbury, the town, but he ends up in this fictional town, Chillingbourne. Uh... Bob Johnson is an interesting character. He was played by not an actor, but a real life uh, U.S. Army sor- sergeant, <laughs> sergeant, sergeant uh, named John Sweet. John Sweet was not an actor. He actually was already, uh, you know, fighting in the war when uh, Emmerich and 
sorry, no, Powell and Pressburger, I'm going, I was going by first name, last name though. When Powell and Pressburger, they actually approached him and told them, can you be in our movie? You're not an actor, but we like you. Can you be in our movie? This guy had no acting experience, really. He was born in Minnesota. Uh, and he said that, you know, he had the time of his life making this movie. And I love this fact. He actually, uh, donated all of his profits he made all the his salary he made for the movie he donated it to the national association for the advance for the advancement of colored people very sweet yeah he was a good man um his performance i had a few issues with his performance which i'll get into i can't criticize him because again he's not an, he was not an actor but um, anyway, okay, they end up in this town. It's like it's dark. It's like the middle of the night. They get off the train uh, and they're all, you know, again, Bob is doesn't need to be there, but the other two need to. And they get there and Allison is supposed to be there to work on a farm in the area. Uh, and, you know, and, and Peter, the, the British RAF guy, uh, rough guy, he uh, is no one ever calls it that. He is just meant to be there because he's supposed to be there for work. Um, the night that they're there, you know, they're all kind. They all kind of, you know, I have to say too, you know, Bob is kind of like the comical, plucky, plucky comic relief in this movie because he's like, "Well, I don't want to be here. What should I do?" But he's a bit of like a a free spirit too, and he's, he he kind of goes with the flow. He's like a stoner who doesn't smoke pot. You know, he's like that type of guy. Like you meet people like that or that are like. I don't mean to be in this situation, but cool, whatever, bring it on. You know, he's kind of like that type of dude. So they're walking into town, uh, and it's, it's, it's very late. And all of a sudden, um, Al <laughs> this is where the absurdity comes in. Allison is attacked by this man who pours glue on her hair. And she's like, why, what is this? And he runs away. And the other men are like, what, who was that? And they chase after him and they don't catch him. And... It's disgusting. I've never had glue in my hair. I hate glue. I absolutely hate glue. What is the glue brand with like the the, the bowl on it? it or is it, is it like a pig? What is it? I hated that as a kid. Getting glue on your hands or like on the carpet or whatever. Nasty. Now imagine getting it in your goddamn hair. Yeah. Yucky. So they get into town, they tell everyone that ha what happened, and everyone in town says, oh, we're used to it, that guy is known as the glue man. This has been happening for a while, he's been doing that to a lot of women in town. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, Allison is like, well, who is it? And they're like, we don't know, he's just like a, we don't know if he's just like a crazy guy, or like a homeless guy, or like a drunk, or whatever, but he's doing that. And uh, they, you know... They don't know what to do about it. So great. Um, and you know, they also, this is where Allison meets uh, the magistrate, magistrate, magistrate. Is that how you say the name? The, the, the occupation, I mean? Yeah. Thomas Culpepper. I love that name. He's played by Eric Portman. Culpepper is a bit of a misogynist. I mean, you know, he's like a typical man from the forties. He does. Allison wants to do a lot of work. She really wants to help the British government out in the, you know, for this war and uh, Cole Pepper is that type of dude who's like, oh, women should not be helping us. You should be, you know, in the kitchen or in the fields helping us, you know, typical men. Ugh. So that's a little bit disappointing. But, uh, you know, together, though, 
uh, you know, Bob and Allison and, uh, oh God, what's his name? Yeah, Peter, you know, they kind of devise this, they come up with this plan to find out who the glue man is. And they kind of go on this, separately, they go on this little investigation. Uh, you know, John works with a, a group of these adorable little, uh, like, Boy Scouts, Boy Commandos, I guess that's, that's what the Wikipedia page says, um, who, you know, to ask them if they know anything about this glue man. Allison interviews uh, people, women in town and is taking notes about when they were attacked by this guy. Uh, you know, Peter goes to Culpepper's because they suspect Culpepper did this just because he's Culpepper. He doesn't, the guy doesn't even like women. So why, of course, it makes sense why he would pour glue on a woman's, you know, hair. So he kind of starts to peep into his house and his, and his life and see if all the, you know, dots connect and he really is the guy. We learn a little bit about these characters. We mostly learn about uh, Bob. You know, Bob is in love uh, with his girlfriend, but he has not received any letters from her in a while. And he's a little bit pessimistic at this point, but, you know he's he's willing to kind of just deal with the fact that like okay well i'm in the i'm in a war right now so things are going to change i feel like that's kind of the vibe i got from him the uh so you know we're nearing uh the end the movie goes on and on and they they kind of figure that culpepper is the guy uh cut to you know the third act of the movie the four of them peter allison culpepper and bob they are on a uh, train going in, uh, into Canterbury because, you know, remember, uh, Bob has to go there anyway. And they're in this compartment in the train and they all, it's like a scene from like a noir detective movie. You know, they all are like, you did this, you're the glue man. And Culpepper is very calm and he just flat out admits that he doesn't, uh, you know, deny anything. He says, yes, he is. And you know what he says? He says, yes, I've been pouring glue on women's hair uh, because I don't want the men to get distracted by these beautiful women. I want the men to keep fighting and I don't want women to distract them. And I don't want married men to get distracted by single women in town. So I've been pouring glue on their hair so that, you know, I don't even know why. So what, like they'll look less attractive or or like they'll go away? I don't know. Culpepper, you suck. That is so stupid. Jesus Christ, get laid, why don't you? I mean, it's dumb. It's very, very dumb. Uh, you know, the the movie, there's a lot of impressive shots in the end sequence. So, you know, the end of this movie, they arrive in Canterbury. Canterbury, Barry, I don't know how, how you say it, apologies. But, uh, you know, they get there. And uh, this movie was not, it was filmed not at Canterbury Cathedral. They could only sneak one shot in that, uh, in the Canterbury Cathedral. They couldn't, they weren't allowed to because remember this was during the war. So, uh, you know, the stained glass windows, they had already been taken out because of the air raids. So they couldn't even film in that. So the, the shots in this movie that are set in the cathedral were actually all, uh, made like on a, you know, on a set, on a movie set. But they get to Canterbury and it's sad. Um, there are, there's uh, carnage there. No, not carnage. What's the word? There's devastation. I guess that's the word. You know, buildings have been blown up there from air raids. 
you know, Allison is walking into town and it is a, a good shot. She's walking into town and she's going by building and building and then it's just rubble, you know, and people in the town are just used to it. Uh, and she finds out that her boyfriend, uh, who she thought was, uh, who she thought died in the war is actually alive. Uh, I forgot to say this, but, you know, earlier on in the film, uh, Peter says that he's a cinema organist. (sighs) That almost came out wrong. A cinema organist back in the day was when you would go to a, like a silent movie and you would play the piano or play an instrument as the movie played for the audience. And they would get rowdy and be like, yeah, you know, so that was his job. He goes to this you know, cathedral, which is really there, the Canterbury Cathedral, and it's, he gets to play uh, the organ or the piano, whatever it's called. He plays Bach, and it's, um, you know, Bach, that famous song, I think it was, was it in Phantom of the Opera, the movie Phantom of the Opera? I can't remember. Organ, yeah, he gets to play it there, and then sweet old Bob finds out that he finds the letters from uh, his girlfriend. He finds out that, yes, she had been sending him letters. They were just delayed. And she's now uh, in Australia working for the WAC, the Women's Army Corps. So she loved him all along. Now, I read a little bit about what this... All, and then the movie ends. The movie kind of ends just out of nowhere. And I was very shocked. And the movie's like two hours long, too. So I was like... what. Uh, oh, that's it? I expected more from this. I really did. Now, I read a little bit about what it all means. Um, you know, this movie does also, like, actually refer to the Canter- the actual Canterbury Tales. And, like, there's a, a scene when they're in the compartment, in the, the train compartment, where um, Culpepper says that, you know, in the Canterbury Tales, the pilgrims went they voyaged to Canterbury to quote unquote receive a blessing or to do penance. Now what the three main characters end up doing is they end up kind of getting blessings of their own. You know, Allison's boyfriend's alive, Bob's girlfriend has been sending him letters, and Peter can do what he loves best and play the you know, Peter, again, remember, he's in the army. He can't be a cinema organist anymore. They get to, he gets to do it again. Aw, so it's all happy. You know, they all get their blessings and it's all good and great. I just didn't really get it. I, I, I did not get it. Uh, I, I was not totally as moved by the movie as I thought I would have been. You know, I took some notes. There were things that I did like. I've mentioned the cinematography. Um, I, I also mentioned too, I mean, again, the, it's there's a scene in the movie where Peter and Bob are flat out talking about World War II. They're talking about Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor had happened two years before this movie came out. They're talking about the Nazis and the the Axis powers, you know, the Italians and the Japanese. And I think that's pretty cool. I mean, to talk about that in a movie that was, it's not cool. No, sorry, that came out wrong. No, World War II was horrible. What I mean is that it's pretty cool to see that in a movie that was filmed during World War II. You know, you'd think that that would have been frowned upon or forbidden, but I think it's really cool that they're actually talking about it. Uh, there's, you know, and I, okay, let's go back to Bob Johnson. Um, let's go back to this this guy, you know, John Sweet, who played him. Okay. Bob Johnson, not an actor. 
he's got the accent. He's got the Minnesota accent. I just need to tell you what he sounds like. Um, I'm holding in my hand right now the DVD of Home Alone. And I'm going to read the back of it, the description. Uh, this is what Bob sounds like throughout A Canterbury Tale. Okay. Everyone's favorite Christmas caper is now on an all-new DVD with an armory of special features, including an all-new on-camera interview with Macaulay Culkin, multiple deleted scenes, never-before-seen featurettes, great games, and an audio commentary with director Chris Columbus and Culkin. Uh, Bob, dude. Bob is a very likable character in this movie. I think I just had trouble liking him. <laughs> I think it was just the way he delivered his lines in the movie. I, I couldn't really get past it. I couldn't. And I can't be mad, though. I can't yell at this guy because, um, first of all, I don't. I did not know this guy. But also, you know, he um, he wasn't an actor. You know, and he, he's he's got charisma in this movie. Bob does, because Bob is just a good... It's like I said, he's a stoner who doesn't do drugs. There's actually, speaking of stoning, there's a reference to marijuana in this. That's how I say it, marijuana, but it's marijuana. That's how you're supposed to say it, marijuana. There's a reference to that in this movie, which I like. And I think even uh, <laughs> Bob himself says it. Yeah, so... um. Do I recommend this movie? Look, uh, th this movie also, you know, this movie was not a box office hit when it came out. It's not really considered to be the du the director duo's greatest movie, like I said. I mean, it was not super well-received when it came out, but it has a legacy. Uh, you can go, if you're in England, you can actually go to the sites where they filmed this movie. The shots that they filmed that were supposed to be in uh, the Canterbury Cathedral they were so convincing back in the day that, like, I think, I don't know if they do this anymore, but, like, tour guides used to actually give tours in the cathedral and say, yes, this movie was filmed here, when actually it wasn't. They filmed, you know, outside shots of the cathedral, but not from inside. Like I said, it was only one shot, and it was, they had to sneak it in. Uh, it's a shot where Peter's, like, looking up uh, in the middle of the cathedral, whatever it's called. What's it called? What's the term? I forget. I'm not an architect. I don't know. But, um... I was just bored. I was bored during this movie. I was I was bored. It did not really I, I could not get into it. I, I think I would have liked it more if there was more humor. Uh, I did not mind the absurd plot of it all that I, I like because it's it's Canterbury Tales, you know, so I like that. Um, again, cinematography was gorgeous. The dialogue was really good. Uh, uh, you know, decent performances. Um, Bob, again, I know I'm making fun of the way he delivered his lines, but um, it, 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 it's whatever, you know, it, it's fine. He didn't ruin the movie for me also. And he did not. Um, I, I, I think it just it didn't impact me as much as I thought it would. It really didn't. It kind of was a nice movie, but I don't know if I would want to watch it again. I, I, I would. And I think what's also kind of confusing me is I, I've read some reviews that are like, oh, it's an incredible modern day depiction of, you know, Europe and the UK during the war, the Great War. And I'm like, I don't think it is really. Personally, it is when they go to Canterbury and they see the rubble and everything. Yes, that is good. But that's not until like the last 20 minutes of the movie. 
the whole, all the minutes before it is all about finding the glue man. I don't, was there a glue man during World War II? Is that a metaphor for like, you know, somebody, a bad guy in World War II? I don't know. No, no, of course not. So look, I, I'm not saying don't see this movie. I don't want to say don't see this movie for any of the movies on this list. I was a little surprised that this movie, you know, is higher up than some of the previous films I've reviewed because I think uh, they're a lot better made. But um, I'm not, I don't, I have no, nothing super negative Nancy to say about it. I cannot wait to see these directors' other films. Uh, I really have always wanted to see Black Narcissist and and uh, the other one, The Red Shoes. So I'm looking forward to it. You know, this is just the first movie that I've seen of theirs. And maybe their other ones will be a little bit more uh, impactful and, and entertaining, I think, too. I think that was the other thing. I did not like the length of this movie. I do not think it needed to be two hours long. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. No way. Hold is a no. No, 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 no. There's nothing more annoying more annoying when a long movie is long for no reason at all. There's none. No. I have things to do. No. No. Okay. On that note, you guys. Yes, I didn't love this movie, but... It's bound to happen. It was bound to happen. And there's probably going to be a lot more that I may not enjoy as much. But I am pleased that I saw it. I'm very pleased that I finally saw a movie by, uh, and I forget their names already. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm so bad at doing my homework for these things. The directors, the duo directors. Oh, I okay. I always want to say Michael Pressburger and Emmerich Powell. It's not. It's Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Okay. Emmerich and Michael, rest in peace. I really am looking forward to seeing your other movies. And I do, again, appreciate the scope of this film. I think it was well done on that scale, on that level, I mean. But yeah, I think it's a little forgettable, though. But no movie is perfect, okay? No movie is perfect. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Do not forget to uh, rate and review what you think of me. I would love to hear what you think of me. Tell everyone about this. Continue listening. It's three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. You can listen to I'm Reviewing Here anywhere you get your podcasts. It's really fun. It's so much fun doing this. I cannot wait for the next movie, too. I'm going to watch it tonight, actually. And it's a spooky movie. Well, it's not really spooky. It's just disturbing. And I'm going to be excited to review that. So, um, yes, watch those movies, people. Go back to the movies, for God's sake. Go back to the movies and experience the beauty of this medium. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.